Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Many have said that one of the greatest hindrances to the creative process is distraction. And certainly, this pandemic has posed an incredible amount of stress and difficulty on people. But I think perhaps one of the sort of unseen gifts that we'll experience in the coming months and perhaps years is that this has been an unprecedented time for creativity. People have been, in some ways, distraction-free if they have embraced the last few months as such. Now, the Apostle Paul was in no way in a pandemic, but he was in prison. He was secluded in a a way set aside to the purpose of writing this letter. And he wrote the letter to the Ephesians as a blueprint for not only the church at Ephesus, but the surrounding churches in the region. And as you read it, this letter pens somewhere between 80, 55, and 60, just under 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, you will see that this prayer in Ephesians 3 is uniquely beautiful. Beautiful. There is this masterful weaving together of ideas and themes from the first few chapters all into a culminating prayer at the midpoint of the book. And I want to show you one thing, the main thing from this prayer, and then I want to try and help us practically receive what it's saying. Let's go. For this reason, he says in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. Hold up. So he actually said the same thing in verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason. And so plenty of commentators would say that what's going on here is Paul meant to pray at the beginning of the chapter, and then all of a sudden he got distracted. Um, And then he starts, of course, now praying in verse 14 to the Father. And I can see what they're saying because for the theologian, right, that perspective, Paul could get distracted by the mystery of the gospel, this bringing together Jews and Gentiles, reconciling two completely different people into one new humanity in Christ, that could be distracting. But the pastor in me also sees, hey, he probably just unpacked this massive truth about redemption and reconciliation, and now he's going, wait a second, how are the people gonna receive this? I need to make sure that they do not lose heart. But, If I'm honest, the prophet in me says, no way. There is absolutely no distraction here. I mean, if Paul wanted to rewrite, he could have rewrite. If God wanted it differently, he would have. I think you have this incredible pause now, the repetition of for this reason, so that all that happens in the first three chapters, including what's just happened for the church not to lose heart, and for this incredible mystery of the gospel, and for the full plan of salvation and redemption, Paul says, my knees buckle. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, which was not customary. For a Jew in his day, it was customary to stand praying up, stand up, eyes open, praying upward. But Paul, in a moment of reverence, like Solomon, when he dedicated the temple and then the glory of God descended upon the people of God, 
bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. This is the main point of the prayer. Now, some would argue that there's a lot that's gone on after this, right? Of course, right? He goes on then to talk about the love of Christ and that we would be able to understand this incomprehensible love. Then he goes on to talk about being filled with the fullness of God. And so there could be this cascading effect in the prayer. But I believe that the power of God through the Holy Spirit is what Paul is praying for because without the power of the Holy Ghost, There is no strengthening in the inner being. Without the power of the Holy Ghost, there is no comprehension of the love of Christ at all. That is beyond measurement in magnitude. There is, without the Holy Ghost, no filling with the fullness of God and of His presence. And I think that Paul prays for the power of the Spirit because powers is significant in his context. In the surrounding region, and for sure in Ephesus, there was a myriad of different powers and spiritual forces at play. Similarly to the South Side, if you're looking at Minneapolis, there's an array of different influences and forces. You can almost feel it as you walk through the streets in the neighborhoods. But Paul wants them to see that there is a power, a supreme power that can be at work with in the Christian. And then it's almost as if his prayer has become so full with the themes of chapters one and two that it spills over into praise. And he says, now to him be glory. To him be glory. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now here's the problem that I have with this passage. I love this prayer. I'm drawn to it over and over. And I, like so many other leaders, love the bigness of it. And this is my issue, right? There's something in this prayer as used by many leaders that makes us think about all of the big things God could do all of the amazing things God could do out there, the way that God could change systems and and build institutions and start movements. And listen, my beef is not that God is not able to do any of those things, because of course he can do those things. But mainly my beef is that Paul is not praying for that at all. This prayer gets hijacked. And I wonder if you've encountered it that way. Where this grand, more than I can think or imagine, feels so out there as if there's power somewhere where God is able to do big things. But this is not what Paul is praying. Paul is praying that there would not be an experience of power out there, but there would be power in here. There would be power in here here. They, the the, the original audience, lived in a world where they were aware of all these powers and forces around them, yet they, by faith, had united, been fused to the one who has all power over all things now and forever, and the one with all power by his Spirit chose to live in here. Do you experience 
power in here, not just there, but daily, monthly, hourly? Do you ever experience the power of God by His Spirit at work in your core inner being, in your heart? The point of this passage is that there is real power from God available to those who believe in here, not just out there. And for me as a pastor, I am jealous for us as a church not to walk around praying big, inspiring prayers about what could happen out there, but for us to experience the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit in here. And in order to do that, I've got three things, three invitations that I think God is making to us this morning. And here they are. If we are to be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit in here. We must recover the Father, receive the Son, and rely on the Holy Spirit. Recover the Father, receive the Son, and rely on the Holy Spirit. We're going Trinity today. Yes, sir. We are going all in triune God today. To be strengthened by the power of God, you need to recover the Father. I wonder if you passed over that when we read the beginning of the passage. For this reason, I bow my knees before who? The Father. Now listen, many may slide by that unnoticed, but it's not something that we should sort of overlook because the role of God as Father, especially in the New Testament and in Christianity as opposed to other strands of spirituality, cannot be underemphasized. It is astounding that God is Father. And if you look at it in sort of concentric circles, you have at the core, in the center, a narrow version where Jesus is the Son begotten of the Father. And then where Christians, this new humanity, right, have been adopted in Christ into the family of God. And then beyond that, all of creation sees God as Father because all of creation is derivative from the Father as its source. If you just look here in the passage, the riches of glory are the Father's. The Spirit who's being sent is the Father's. The um, glory being spoken at the end of this passage. Now to Him, who's Him? To the Father. Now listen, beyond all the theology, which is good and rich in here, there's a real issue. Because if you're like me, you've encountered the way in which in our society, there are many issues with fatherhood. So prevalent were the issues, the daddy issues, um, in Portland when Cole Brown planted his first church. He wrote a book about the issues, daddy issues, how the gospel heals wounds caused by absent, abusive, and aloof fathers. And it's safe to say that now since Cole's moved on and is sort of a movement catalyzer in much of Latin America, that the Latin reception of problemas paternales is actually much broader than the one that was on the West Coast. So what this, this passage sort of asks us is, hey, what's your relationship with your father like? That's going to affect your experience of power at the core of your being. If your experience with your earthly dad was one where... Dad was absent, always working, hardly present. 
that'll affect. If your experience is one where your earthly dad was abusive, emotionally, physically, sexually, that's going to affect your relationship with the father. If your experience was that your earthly dad was aloof, there but not fully there, there but not emotionally there, providing resources but without relationship, that is going to dramatically affect the way that you pray and the way that you draw on God's power. How have your issues with your earthly father affected your relationship with the heavenly father? If the Father has riches in glory, if He's got all fullness to offer you, then relating to God as Father is something really significant. And if you and I are going to be strengthened with power in the core of our inner being from the riches of glory that the Father has, then we have to recover the Father in the sense of Him being our Creator and Him being our Dad. We must live as dependents of the Father if we're to draw off the resources of power from the Father, right? He is to supply. He is to meet our needs, right? The simple truth is we don't experience so much of God's power because we're so content to rely on our own power, right? Our own strength. There is within our society a streak of independence and self-determination that is rugged and that is consistent. And if we are to live as dependents, of God the Heavenly Father, we must learn to embrace dependence. Paul is saying here in this prayer about the triune God that there is another take. Perhaps life is not all about your independence. Perhaps life is not all about your ability to self-determine the future and accomplish everything you hope and dream. Not only do we need to live as dependents of the Father, we need to live under the discipline of the Father. Many of the reasons that Christian life goes off tracks is because we've forgotten the reality that it is mainly about us maturing, growing up. Right? There are some things in childhood, as you're growing up, that you just don't want to do, but you've got to do. And you flat out won't do unless your relationship with your dad is such that you trust him enough to do what he says you got to do, even though you don't want to do, right? And if you try and grab at the resources of God the Father and sort of cut out the relationship, that just won't work. Even if it has worked with your earthly dad, it won't work with your heavenly father. And you'll continue in a woundedness that will leave you lacking maturity spiritually. In order for you to experience power in your inner being, you need to recover a healthy relationship with God the Father. But not only that, you need to receive the Son. You need to receive the Son. Look at not a this is for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to his riches in, of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith is the way that the original leads, but there's enough of a so that that I'll give it. So that, not as the cause, but actually as the means by which the spirit strengthens the means by which the Spirit strengthens is Christ 
dwelling in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When I read that, some of you melt. Your heart says, yes, the love of Christ. Yes, dwelling rooted in him. And others of you are like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like all of this flowery language about love that's immeasurable and that I can't understand. Like that just doesn't get with me. Well, let me see if I can make it plain. To receive the Son means two things. That you receive His power and authority. But it also means that you receive His love and His presence. Surely... Let me see if I can help you out if this emotional passage doesn't appeal to you. Probably if emotions don't appeal to you, which they should, work appeals to you. And you likely have had that project, whether at the office or at home, or something that you've given blood, sweat, time, energy invested in, and then stepped back to be able to look at it and felt that bit of satisfaction and joy. But look at what the Apostle Paul's doing. He is stepping back and looking at the finished project and work. But it's not his own project. He's actually looking at the work of Jesus. And it's the work of Jesus that he spent two chapters building up to this point. You don't jump in at chapter three. He's warmed up all the way to this spot of heightened emotion and devotion, right? But now he's there inviting us to embrace the authority and the power of Jesus who rules over all things and has wanted to make his home in you, to dwell there. Paul wants us, whole body, heart, mind, soul, strength, everything to belong to the one who has authority over all. And if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, if you are in Christ, he has authority over you and you belong to him. This prayer is a reminder for Christians of who owns the house. That's what this means, that Christ would dwell in your hearts, that he would make it his home. And listen to me, if Christ is to live in you, he can't be the guy that crashes on your couch. He is the owner of the house. To receive the Son also means to welcome his presence and his love. Right To be rooted and grounded in love. This is the growing and the maturing, the building language, right? And it's it's as if Paul wants us to see that this power is not available for some grand vision out there, but for a godlier version of you. That's what the power is there for. That you would be grown up with a steadier sense of love. That you would be more secure in God's love than you would be in the insecurity of your performance. That you would be more anchored in God's love than you would be searching for the approval of others. That you would have strength to comprehend that which is incomprehensible, beyond measure. 
Many of you have spent time at Minnehaha Falls. And if not, probably you've been to St. Anthony Falls if you've been in Minneapolis for any amount of time and seen the water spilling over. St. Anthony Falls, that falls is actually what helped found this city um, and built it into what it is. But if you, for example, were at Minnehaha Falls and you felt like you wanted a drink, so you got out your canteen or maybe a glass, whatever you have, and sought to just sort of siphon off a little bit of water into your glass. If you could even have the strength to hold it there with the flow and not sort of get your arm taken and your glass taken with you, you would immediately have your cup spilling over. You would immediately have your cup spilling over. And if you think about that cup filling to the overflow, not just in an instant, but the amount of water flowing day by day, year after year, decade after decade, all the way from there, all the way down into the Mississippi and into the ocean, that kind of immensity of flow is the, the kind of magnitude that Paul is talking about here. A love beyond measure given to us in Jesus. But here's the deal. Love can be offered and not received. Is that you? Has the love of Christ been offered to you, but you have yet to receive it? You will only experience the power of God at work in you when you come to know the love that God has for you in Christ. If you do not receive it, it is almost as if you smell fresh bread baking, but don't ever get to taste it. Don't ever get to be nourished by it. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord, that King Jesus is good. Not only the Father, not only the Son, but we need to rely on the Holy Spirit if we are to be strengthened with the power of God in our inner being. The power of His Spirit inside of us that we would be able to, that God would do more abundantly than we ask or imagine according to what? To the power that is work, where? Within us. Now these things sound incredibly great, but have you ever wondered, why don't I experience this power? Like, why is the church so ineffective at what it's trying to do if they have this kind of power at work within them individually and collectively? Well, that's a very real problem. One at which there are really only two responses when you reflect upon it. And they are, A, this theology is wrong. It sounds great, sounds wonderful, but it just isn't true. There is no power available to you and to me that lives within us and works. It's a fabrication. It's not real. And the other would be, it's true. There is power at work within those who believe, but our process has gone off the rails. Now, some of you know the story of how Emmanuel Fellowship got started, but one of the core reasons that I planted this church is that I became convinced from my study of scripture, my experience of people in these neighborhoods, and my time at church, and I, and I started to see that it is true. 
that, that the, the presence and power of God are real and they are here at work around us advancing God's kingdom and within us advancing God's kingdom. But I also became convinced that much of church gets discipleship off the rails and therefore God's people don't experience power. Let me offer two corrections from this prayer for us. The first is that we have resources. We have resources for change. Right? The simple truth of our society is that it runs upon the principle of scarcity. Now, I'm no economist. I did take economics. And I do know that supply and demand and scarcity are incredibly important in our free market economy. And I do know that over the past couple of months that many of you encountered scarcity for the first time in your lives. Going to the grocery store and there's no toilet paper there or whatever else. Or trying to do a drive up and they can't, so they can't you know, fill all your order for you. Like, whatever. Scarcity is a real thing. And Paul here is offering us another take that the ways of the world bring doubt and insecurity. They bring fear, they bring distrust, and they bring scarcity. But on the other hand, the ways of the kingdom are the ways of abundance, peace, generosity, and trust. Do you believe this? That there are abundant resources available to you in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Klein Snodgrass, the commentator that I've loved reading as I'm studying the book of Ephesians. He says, this prayer assumes that the Christian life is not automatic. Life comes from God as a gift, but it's not magic. It is a life of engagement with God's spirit, becoming more aware and more expectant of his work in our lives. That's so good. To be expectant, that's a term of abundance. Anxiety? Well, that's the reality of scarcity. We have resources to grow and change if we rely on the Holy Spirit and engage Him using the very gifts that God has given to us. But not only do we have the resources, we have a different aim. We aim, according to this passage, for maturity, not for the momentary. We aim for maturity, for where we're going, not for the momentary, what we experience now. I mean, the simple truth is, listen, you could sell a trip. Lots of trips you could sell. Not now, nobody's traveling. But, like, you can't sell a journey. You, you could sell a weekend, a getaway, but, but selling a way of life, a way of going through the world, that's so much harder to do. And we get off the rails when it comes to experiencing God's power and even living the Christian life as disciples and making disciples when it becomes so much about experiencing God's power because we've bought into the lie that life is all about experiences. The thirst for experiences, Paul says. Let me give another take on that. Perhaps your hunger for the newest, the greatest, another thing to experience is actually a clue to one of the gods of our time. One of the ways that the enemy has infiltrated the church and derailed the kind of maturing work that God's Spirit so greatly does in His people. God is not after some grand vision and experience for you, but a godlier version of you. Listen to Snodgrass. 
This is the language of discipleship. To be permeated with Christ is to be stamped by his character, to be clothed with him. The thought that we can believe in Christ without being like him is absurd. If Christ's indwelling does not transform, we must question strenuously whether or not Christ is present. The problem is with us, not with God. The Spirit of Christ does not work without our willingness, nor does He move us to the desired goal overnight. He lives within us. And this life is a growth process, and we are responsible and active in that process. Passivity does not fit the Christian faith. Are we actively engaging the Spirit of God? Do we offer a willing heart to the Holy Spirit, trusting Him day by day, moment by moment? Do we aim for maturity, not just for momentary experiences? This week I was on a Zoom prayer call with some others from church and the spiritual and the worship experience of that Zoom call was straight out of the heavenlies in the way that Ephesians talks about it. I mean visions, I mean tongues, I mean insight into different people who were there and not there. I mean joy and peace and this heavenly experience as the Spirit of God united us across fiber optic cables and cell phone towers and satellites into the very presence of God where it seemed like the glory of God sort of fell upon us. It was incredible. It was amazing. But if you sort of surveyed the people who were on that call, I guarantee you that none of us expected that, nor did we seek that outright. In fact, I'm pretty sure that everybody on that call would say something like, I just want to be the kind of person who prays. Maturity, not momentary experience. Even as great as the experiences are, they are meant to lead us onward towards maturity. The gift for me that night was to remember that in this passage, which is a prayer, that these things often come by prayer, receiving the Son, recovering the Father, relying on the Holy Spirit, those things come by prayer. And and prayer is how God starts to not just be out there for you, but become in here for you, empowering you for the life that you're living. And here's how you know you're starting to trust the Father. You're starting to rely on the Spirit. You're starting to receive the Son. You start to say, not to me, to him be glory, right? Like when you start to, re- to recover a deep relationship with God, your father, you start to go, to, to, the, to God, Abba, be glory. When you start to receive the son as authority and power and as the one who loves you with a love beyond comprehension, you say, to him be glory. And when you start to rely on the spirit, it becomes so clear it's not about something you're experiencing but it is about the living God who deserves praise. To Him be glory. How astonishing is it that the church gets stacks next to Christ as the ones in whom God will get glory? How do we get in that sentence? 
Here's what I want to do. I want to make this so practical for you. Would you pray these verses, verses 14 through 21, every day for the month of May? And would you seek the Lord together, church? Simple. It would take you but a few minutes or could springboard you to even an hour's worth of prayer. But would you pray these verses every day for the month of May and let's see what God does. Let me pray. Father, would you strengthen your church with power by your Holy Spirit such that we might be the ones who shine forth your glory now and forever. Amen.